Hi everyone, you're listening to Accents on WUKY. My name is Katerina Stoykova, I'm your host, and with me today is poet, teacher, non-fiction writer Greg Pape. Hi Greg, thanks for coming on Accents. Thank you for having me, Katerina, it's great to be here. Greg was my first poetry mentor at my MFA program. He has been hugely influential for me, both as a poet and as a teacher, and I am deeply grateful for everything I have learned from him. And here he hears me uh, say things like that every time I see him, pretty much. Uh, besides that, he is an amazing poet. He is the author of the recently published A Field of First Things, a gorgeous poetry collection in every sense of the words. Congratulations on that Thank book. You. Yeah. Thank you. Please tell the listeners of Accents about this collection. Um, th- this is a book uh, that is close to my heart. I mean, it's it's one that I worked on for a long time. I've written almost two new books since then. Um, but this one was very important to me because I, I had this idea that I should connect with my younger self in a, in a really active way. I mean, I should, I should go back and not just remember the past, but reimagine uh, important moments in my life. Uh, I think as you get older, there's something in you that wants to that wants to bring together everything that's important. Like, um, what are the what are the essential things? And I think you know, just the way things have been the last several years, going through the the pandemic and all the upheaval in this country, um, the the, the sort of vagueness of values that are out there. I, I think that going back and seeing clearly what's important, what matters, uh, was was a good thing to do. Was a, was a good project, and it's I guess it's been part of my ongoing project to investigate um, my childhood ever since I read Rilke's Letters to a Young Poet which I recommend to all my students. And um, in, in, in that book, Rilke says to the young poet, he says, even if you were uh, imprisoned, even if you had nothing else, you were isolated, um, you, have, you still have uh, your childhood, which uh, I think he referred to it as a treasure, even if it was uh, difficult even if it was uh, painful stuff, it's still a treasure because it's yours, you know, and it's your founding stuff. So Rilke says, go back to your childhood and and that can be a place to start your art. And it's always been a place where I have found um, momentum, found places where uh, to get the creative flow moving. And so this book was... You know, was in in that sense it was more than just memory but kind of foundational memory well i would say that it's a book about connection you know connection to self connection to others connection to uh nature you can <clears throat> sense a very strong memoiristic feel and your voice being a narrative poet holds that very well yes yes and and now I know that you're working on a memoir, but I'm going to ask you about that later. So okay, would you like to read several poems? Uh, sure, I'd love to. Um, I'll read the first poem in the book, which was a poem that came as a surprise to me because it sort of came out almost without revision. It came. It was one of those gifts, you know, that it seemed to be in the air. I just plucked it. Ode to the letter R. Uh, I'm not sure how it started, but uh, it's, you know, thinking about language, thinking about 
that letter. The way it starts rain and opens rose. As long as I can remember, I have loved that sound. Though love may sound too strong a word, I am past saving it up. Our hurting economy needs it now, just as the river needs its water to meander and run, to riffle and swirl, to roil and pool and fall on its way to rendezvous with the sea. In the rivers and seas of language, it is just a small boat with a small sail. But it seems to have traveled everywhere, rising above the waves and rolling on the tongues from Spain to India to Tierra del Fuego. It lives in the Arctic and the Antarctic. It forages with the bear and prowls with the tiger. Virgil and Homer, because it lived in them, gave it a lasting place in the breath of their stories. Born on the African diaspora, it rode the tide of rhythm and blues to the shores of rock and roll, reborn over and over in reading and writing. It has a place in right and wrong. It is first and last in remember. And when removed from dearth, what's left? As long as there is breath in the breather, I know it's worth and am its lover. Um, it's my commitment to the language, <laughs> uh, to my love of the language. So, and the and language, this is something that that you know I slowly discovered over all these fifty years of teaching that um, the language is um, one of our greatest gifts because it's made up by all the people that came before us. It, it came from way back there in the DNA, you know, from Africa, and it moved all around the world, and it picked up things here, and it defined itself there, and um, it's just such a mixture of human experience that is alive in the language. So when you say a word, it's not just this abstract thing, it's a thing that carries human experience. And hopefully forward, too. Yeah. Think forward. Are you scared about AI? I don't know enough about it to be scared. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm, I am blissfully ignorant on the subject of AI. Uh, it seems to me that, uh, that it, it's one of those things that there's a lot of fear-mongering going on in our world right now. And it's, there's so many things we can be afraid of. Um, I believe that we need to be aware of everything out there, but we, we also need to be fearless. You know, so if you can shake the fear, however you do it is good. <laughs> <laughs> All right, please read more poems from your book. Okay. That was a, you know, that, that was a, in a higher register poem. And a lot of my poems are much quieter, much uh, more uh, down to earth. This, the, the second poem in here, I think, defines this quieter sort of voice. And it comes from specific childhood experience. It's called Salt. I sat on a bar stool, shoulder high to the bar, and out of the corner of my eye, watched a man tip a salt shaker over his beer, a clandestine witness to a small wonder. Thrilled by the immediate alchemy of salt, salt crystals giving off a chain of bubbles as they fell through golden light, I felt that I had learned something. I had heard the phrase salt of the earth and imagined the sting like salt in a wound. But this was something new. I was certainly closer to a sprout than an old salt. My stepfather called me pumpkin, but I couldn't see it. I sat up straight, squared my shoulders, sighed a little, 
like late afternoon and tipped some salt into my Pepsi, sensing that something like creation, seen or unseen, must be, even now, here at Andy's bar, as we waited for the mailboat to appear out of the glittering distance from Punta Gorda, a condition of the present essential assault. So beautiful. That uh, when I was a little kid, I lived on Captiva Island for a while. And in those days, Captiva Island was not, you know, a, a rich people's paradise, you know, um, a, a, a tourist destination. It was a remote island that you had to take a five-car ferry from the mainland to get to. And my, uh, my stepfather was a... He, he brought us there because he was, he was hired to build some houses, and we lived there for a couple of years on Captive Island as he was building houses. Um, but every day we would, or not every day, every, two days a week. The mail came two days a week, Wednesday and Saturday. And it came by boat from the mainland, from Punta Gorda. So everybody on the island would go down to Andy's bar hang out waiting for the mailboat to get their mail. And it was a kind of a communal deal, and we all, all the kids saw each other, and all the old people saw each other. And I was a little kid welcome in the bar. You know, so I was sitting at the bar watching this guy drinking a beer, and I thought, that's cool, I'm going to do that too. <laughs> How did it taste, the Pepsi was sold? I think it tasted good. I think it improved the taste. It it gave a little uh, it gave a little um, punch hmm. to the to the sweet. It gave, you know the the Japanese have this sato shoyu idea, the sweet and the salty. Mm -hmm. That's important. I think it worked with Pepsi. Great. <laughs> uh, try it yourself. See what you think. Did you try it with beer later on? Of course. And yes. and I liked it too. Okay. I like that too. In fact, I used to order red beers in Montana. We'd have a have a beer with a little bit of tomato juice in it, a little salt. So it's kind of like a uh, Bloody Mary, except it's with beer. That sounds shocking to me. Does it? <laughs> yes, does it? it does. Try it. Try it. It's very popular in Montana. Really? Red Is there beer. a special name that's... Just call it a red know. beer. Give me a red beer. Okay, red beer. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> Well, maybe everybody in the world knows that but me, but there um, it is. I'm shocked. <laughs> well, I, you know, I learn <coughs> stuff from you every time I talk to you. And um, there it is. We're starting with red beer today. <laughs> maybe I'll start a fad here. No, I'm sure there are people around here that drink red beer every day. You want another poem? Absolutely. Okay. I want to read a little section. Let me read a little section from Road Trip with Lulu. Okay. Just 12 lines. Okay. Lulu was a great dog. She was a, uh, she's gone now, but she was a, a black lab, and she belonged to my friend Onik Smith. And I, Onik would, and Bill Kittredge would go to Santa Barbara and rent a house in the dead of winter to get away from the coldest part of the year in Montana. And um, Anik asked me one time if, if I was free, could I bring Lulu down? Because Lulu was not allowed on the airplane at the time, so they couldn't fly her. And they, she missed her dog. So I took Lulu down to Santa Barbara. And uh, Lulu shaped the experience of this road trip in many ways. Um, but one way is that of course, I had to stop and take her on walks. And we got out and we explored some places that I wouldn't have explored otherwise. Strange things can happen in the desert at night. One can suddenly begin to understand a new language, can begin to hear and comprehend in the murmuring of distant water or the rush rustle the brush stirred by a faint exhalation as vague as a pulse from the stars.
a voice, a rhythm, and a tone, as though one's own footsteps released from the dust and gravel, some long dormant soliloquy, or some prescient recitation from a time to come. It's as though the black dog night pulls one deeper into the night until the night is no longer dark, but luminous with metamorphosis, and one steps out of the body and ranges freely as pollen in the wind. Um, weird experience that Lulu led me into. Can you talk about your relationship to the natural world? Yeah, um, I think that I think all of us are products of the natural world because we are natural. You know, we are nature. Uh, but my experience, um, I think, because I moved around so much as a kid, and I spent a lot of time alone, or with a dog, or um, fishing, or you know, I was outdoors a lot. I think that uh, I knew that I wouldn't be here long because of the way we had, were moving from place to place. My uh, stepfather was a he was a, he was he was an entrepreneur and a guy that set up businesses all the time, but sometimes they didn't work out. Uh, so anyway, I I tried to connect with every every place I was. I mean, I looked at everything and I I wanted to stay there. I wanted I wanted a home uh, rather than to be so peripatetic, moving all the time. So I latched on and fell in love with all the places where we spent some time. The desert in Arizona, the mountains in California, the island in Florida, everywhere we went. I made a point to connect with the natural world, and the natural world gave back all the attention I gave it. The more you pay attention to something, it repays that attention. Can you read a poem about animals, or I don't know what you have selected there, maybe? <coughs> this is a poem about my home in Montana. There are deer all over the place, wild animals all over the place. My house is on a ridge up above the Bitterroot River, and it's a uh, migration corridor from the white-tailed deer come down from the mountains to the river this way. Uh, the, mule deer pass over the ridge this way so that it's like a intersection uh, a wildlife intersection that's been that way for hundreds maybe thousands of years and though we've built houses out there uh, these animals still use their old trails this is called the fence because the neighbors have dogs they fence their five acres with goat wire so-called for the six-inch square grid of wire, too stout for a goat to chew. It works for dogs, but it's hard on deer. Fawns trying to keep up with their mothers have been known to get snared in a goat wire fence and die of hunger, or worse, dogs. Last week, on my way out the road, I came on a full-grown doe, with her rear hoof snared in the top strands of the fence. She hung upside down, thrashing in panic, whipping her contorted body, flailing her sharp hooves against the fence. A magpie watched from a nearby post. The doe rolled her big brown globe, the big brown globe of her eye, showing a crescent of rare white terror at my approach that stopped me and made me avert my eyes. Easy there, I said, trying to sound calm, trying to make myself small as I reached for her leg and grasped it below the hoof, bleeding at the hairline where the wire held her, cutting into her ankle the more she thrashed. Leaning my head away, avoiding her sharp right hoof, kicking wildly toward me, I tugged at the wire, but couldn't free her. 
I backed away, squatted down, and tried to quiet my breathing. Wire cutters, pliers, something to bend the wire. She flailed and flipped over, bending back on her spine, trembling like a hooked fish. I remember the little multi-tool I kept in my truck, knife, screwdrivers, and a small slide-out pliers. I spoke to her as I found them. Easy there, easy girl. I grasped her leg again and pried the wire loose and freed her hoof. Her body dropped exhausted to the ground, and she rolled into the fence with a deep sigh. Her legs curved through the goat wire as though holding on. She lay there still, her eyes closed as if her heart had given out. She might have died of fright. Who knows how long she'd hung, struggling, caught in the fence. Then her ear twitched and her eyes opened and in an instant she rolled away from the fence and was up and running, blood dripping from her hoof, running to join the others who had waited and watched from the pines. What a moment to share, not only with us, but with the animal itself. I think my son showed me how to be uh, strong, face of crazy moments like that because one time I was driving out that same driveway and there was a deer caught in our garden our fenced-in garden a young deer like a little deer a yearling deer and I watched my son drive by it in his pickup truck see the deer throwing itself against the fence and stop his truck backed up and he went in there and he he, he walked into the garden, made himself small. He picked that deer up around the body and threw it out the gate <laughs> because it, it was confused. It kept running into the fence. And I thought, gosh, if he can do that, then I can help this deer, you know. And I was able to. Um, but I wouldn't recommend it. Most What you should do usually is call somebody and get some professional help because a deer... Uh, in that situation, could kick you in the forehead and kill you because the little their hooves are like uh, knives. You know, they're very sharp. Well, you were the professional help at the time because you served at the time as a forest ranger, right? Yes, I I I have worked as a when I was in college. I worked as a firefighter, an emergency firefighter, and. Um, but I've been a uh, river ranger for the Sorry, that's Bitterroot I mean. River yeah. Protection Association. And a river ranger just uh, kind of, I had a, a piece of the river that I was responsible to, 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 to walk and see how things were going and to report on whatever's going on down there. So. We all should have... A portion of a river to be responsible for, don't yeah, you think? Yeah, great idea. Yeah, I we, think that we would. it would just reshape our relationship with water and the natural world. Yeah. Because here we are talking about our relationship to the natural world as if we are not part of it. Right. So what was it like to walk the river? Um, well, I love that. I got to choose my own part of the river and it was a part of the river that was fairly close to my home so I could get down there often and uh, walk that river. And it's a beautiful, beautiful river. And you see something different every single day. The river is constantly changing. Uh, the wildlife and the river corridor is constantly changing. People, uh, you see people in really good situations and also um, people that are not, respecting the the river, you know, people who were throwing trash and stuff like that. Mm. So I had a friend whose house and backyard backed into a creek. So every day she would go and walk inside the creek actually. 
First of all, I was shocked that she did that barefoot. Uh, but not only that, she would take a little bag or a backpack and pick up things that she finds because she would find things all the time, such as feathers or a skull of something yeah. or a neat rock. Yeah. Did you find interesting things while? Oh, you, yeah. 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 Um, I wrote a poem about sitting down. There was this one part of the river where there was a, a down piece of driftwood log, and I would sit down there and in the cold and write. I made a, a New Year's resolution one year that I wouldn't stop writing just because I was going outside. I would write outside. And so I, it was so cold in Montana in the winter that I had to write with gloves on. So I had a big old, big old easy writing pen and some gloves. and I would take my notes and I'd write big and sloppy, but I would write, you know. Uh, and I realized I'm sitting on this bench one day and I looked over uh, next to me and I realized this great big stack of uh, um, poop, you know, scat uh, on the log right next to me. And I started looking at it and, and at the bottom was kind of white around the edges like it had been there a long time and then it got kind of different color and then right at the top it was like green and brown. It was very fresh and I realized this is somebody's outhouse. <laughs> This, this is the marmot's outhouse where I'm writing and meditating. So I put that, I included that in the poem, and it was a fun little discovery. Yeah. I didn't put it in my backpack and take it home. I just left it there. <laughs> you live in Frankfurt, Kentucky, though you spend time in Montana. Do you miss the nature there, the forest and the river? And I do. I, I miss I, I miss Captiva Island. I miss the coast in California. I miss all the places, the desert in Arizona, mm -hmm. all the places I have been. But Frankfurt is beautiful, and where I live is just incredible. It's Peaks Mill out there uh, near Elkhorn Creek, and uh, it's gorgeous. And there is wild nature out there. Uh, we just, a couple of weeks ago, we had big pack of coyotes come through between our house and the house next door and they sounded like banshees wow. you know in the middle of the night it was like a full moon and they're out there going you know just millions of voices blending together and my my neighbor um called me the next day he said did you hear that last night and i said yeah he said tonight let's leave the lights on and maybe we can see them and I said, no, the lights are going to scare them away, you know. Uh, but they're, they're out there. We have seen wild turkeys running across the land. There's lots of deer. Uh, they grow corn out there. And, and after they harvest the corn, the, the deer feed on the down corn. Um, I think there are bobcats out there. I've seen sign of bobcats. So... You know, it's a beautiful natural world. And you're a keen observer. Uh, what is the role of the observation and description in poetry? I think it's everything. I mean, it's it's like uh, who was it? Simone Weil said that attention is prayer. You know, attention is like it opens you up to spiritual connection. But it's important too. I mean, it's just like if if you want to live um, a fulfilling and intense life, just open your eyes. Just just look around. You don't have to do anything else. You know, um, it things will speak to you. So I think for and for for the language, um, for the poet. Um, I've always done this with my uh, beginning students. I say, go out and describe what you see. You know, just start, just start looking at things and write down what you see. You're going to suddenly realize that you're writing poetry. When I saw you last, it was in your house and on the living room table. You had arranged in a long row, one after another, all your poetry books and chapbooks from first to last. 
I'm not going to ask you which one is your favorite, but I'll ask you to speak about the journey. I published my first book, which was a chapbook called Little America. I think it was in 1973. It was a small press called the Mage Press in Tucson, Arizona, where I was uh, going to graduate school at the time, working on my Master of Fine Arts degree. And the press was started by one of my classmates, a guy named Raleigh Kent. And he, he had this series of little books that he did, and they're wonderful books. And recently, Raleigh Kent, who I have not seen in 30 years at least, we got in touch. He published a book with Carnegie Mellon, a book called, and you'll like this, a book called Telephone Ringing in a Dark House. And it's a wonderful book. Um, so that was my first book, and I really liked it because I was involved in in putting it together. You know, it's like we we put it together by hand, and uh, I got to choose the the cover, which was this angel and the stars from some you know some illustration of the of the cosmos, the illustration of the starry night with the, an angel. Uh, outlined in the stars. It was cool, though. And then we put right across the bottom, Little America in neon, you know, across the bottom. So you got these, these, this contrast between the heavenly and the earthly. And between the sacred and the flashy. Yeah, the sacred and the flashy, right. <laughs> yeah, it, it was a cool book. And I think I was doing that because we were moving into this new house and I was just organizing my stuff. And I was finishing up a field of first things, so I wanted to see all these books, and I wanted to show them to you, too. Please describe for our listeners this one, A Field of First Things. A Field of First Things. The, the cover is by my son, Clay, Clay Pape. He is a marvelous artist. Uh, he does um, oil pastel paintings, and uh, this is a gorgeous book. I love that. I love it. I've heard that you're working on a memoir. Your poems also are stories. So first part of the question, what can't you say in poems that requires full-blown prose? Probably, you know, there's, there's probably no real um, important distinction, but for me, I make a distinction between um, what I do in poetry is more a focus on the moment. You know, it's like the moment. The long look. The long look, right. I look into something and I think about it and I imagine it and I try to see it different ways. And in prose, the reason I started writing a memoir was my, my life has been confusing and complicated because I've moved so many times. Uh, from the time I was uh, 18 months old, living in uh, Nyack, New York, in a cut-in-half conduit pipe left over from the military, you know, with boards that you could see through to the ground, freezing, awful place, to Florida, to Miami, Florida. My mother I had asthma as a little kid, and she took me to the doctor, and the doctor said, you better get him out of here if you want him to survive. And so she just took off and took me to Florida. And we lived down in, in Miami for a while. Um, so from, from that age to the present, I've taught all over the country until 1987 when I went to Montana. Uh, I was changing uh, residences every year or two, sometimes twice a year. How many states have you lived in? Oh my goodness, lots, lots of them, probably more than I can count. But see, I'm writing this memoir because I'm trying to connect the, the moments. I'm trying to connect the dots so that I have a clearer idea of the narrative arc. And I'm making new discoveries as I go, you know, and I'm thinking, Oh, I had that wrong for years, you know. I didn't go from there to here. I went from here to there. So I guess it's a, it's a need that I have 
to um, to shape it in a different way, to shape to shape uh, the experience in a different way. I should be writing fiction. I should be writing. Uh, I have another project up the line where I, I've been gifted with. Uh, uh, a story, a family story that I need to write. Um, but I guess in preparation for those things, I thought I better write this memoir so I get it straight. My personal opinion is that you have to write a craft book because you are the human poetry encyclopedia. I don't know anybody else who knows more about poetry than you. Thank you, Katarina. Um, maybe I will. Can you tell us about your re reading habits? I, I'm not a, uh, I used to be a very scholarly kind of reader. I think when I taught uh, graduate workshops and special topics literature um, <clears throat> at the University of Montana, I was able to teach whatever I wanted after the workshops. So I taught prosody, the history of prosody, taught these classes over and over again. And in order to teach them well to really smart people, you have to know your stuff. You've got to know your stuff. So I, so I did a lot of research and a lot of prep for that class. And uh, I wanted to teach a class in which we didn't waste Time. We had a good time, we had an intense time, but none of this getting through the hour stuff. Having something to talk about uh, each day that everybody was bright and interested in. Uh, and then I had special topics courses, and I've always loved ancient Chinese poetry. So I thought, why not teach a class in Chinese poetry and translation? And in order to do that with the quality of students I had, I better know my stuff. So I spent the summer before that class doing, you know, as much research as I could. And luckily, at the University of Montana, uh, where Mike Mansfield was the senator from Montana, he was also the ambassador to Japan and was new China and Asia, he um, gifted the University of Montana Library with, uh, they named it after him, they call it the Mansfield Collection, and it's all this amazing stuff from, from China and Japan. So I had one of the best libraries in the country to prep for that class, that Chinese Poetry and Translation, Japanese Poetry and Translation. Um, I got to really get into And I did that for a few years. The, the students loved the class, and there was always people signing up for it, so I might as well teach it. And I had some marvelous students. Well, teaching teaches you a lot. It does. It does. Because you've got to be a step ahead of your students, or, or at least up to where they are. <laughs> what makes a good poetry book? For me, it's... A real voice and a real vision, an engaging book if I read a poem and it's got something in it that captures my imagination, I'm going to read the next one. You know, so I, I think that a, I'm not against anything, but I'm open, I try to be open to everything when I read it, but the books that impress me most are the ones where I feel that there's a, um, a lived life in the book some real experience in the book. Um, when you say a voice, you know, it's like you read a Robert Penn Warren poem and you can feel the presence of that mind, that vision, in any poem you read of his. You can, you get a sense for it. Whether you like it or not, it's there. And it's engaging. Wendell Berry, Anne Sexton, Sylvia Plath, um, Elizabeth Bishop, who's one of my favorites. Elizabeth Bishop is uh, such a keen observer of the world and such a, a kind of humble person who's not foisting anything on you but giving you uh, the, the gifts that she's received. Tell us about your editing process. 
it's changed over the years because I've always been a believer in revision, not just editing, but revision. Revision means to re-see, rethink, reimagine. I learned from my first, not my first, but my strongest early mentor, Philip Levine, that um, he didn't, he wouldn't allow us. <laughs> he would. If he thought we were writing sloppy, he'd tell us, you know. Uh, the first time I gave him a poem, he, when he looked at it and he said, I got better things to do. <laughs> you know? And he gave it back to me, he says, you know, show me another one when you work a little harder. So um, I did, I gave him another poem, I worked real hard on it, and he looked at it and he read it and he said, it starts here way down near the bottom of the poem. That's where it starts. The rest of that, I don't know what it is, but cut it, start it here. And I, that was an eye-opening experience for me because then I realized, okay, he's not just editing it, he's looking for something. He's looking for the voice. He's looking for um, something real and true, you know, that's in there. And so I started demanding that of my own poems and I got to be a pretty tough critic. In fact, I went through periods where nothing I wrote was good enough for me. Nothing. I mean, I, I put them all aside, put them all aside. Did you pick them back up? At and then point? I picked them back up again. <laughs> Thank God. Eventually, right. <laughs> I picked them back up again. I said, oh, that's not as bad as I thought. You know, in mm. fact, it has possibilities if I work on it. Um, but I think... What you're doing as you're revising poems is you're revising yourself. You're revising your vision. You're revising your mind. Um, and so that's very important. And for a young person feeling angst and not really knowing who you are, it's, it's life and death work. It's like it's re if you're an artist, if you're a poet, whatever you are, you've got to solve those problems. And you got to be real, um, but but then after a while, after you become more confident in what you're doing, your aesthetic, you can play more. You know, you can free yourself. You can give yourself permission to explore this, explore that, to digress. You know, to do other things. So I think that um, now when I write, I don't have to revise as much as I did, although I still revise. Because you've internalized all that you've learned, right? right? Yeah. But I've learned something from you, and I have taught it to everybody that I know uh, that, uh, and who would listen, and I have given you credit, and that is the revision checklist. Mm -hmm. What is the revision checklist? The revision checklist is um, custom-made. It's like whatever you've learned and whatever what you're doing is you're sort of organizing your aesthetic. And you're saying, um, let's look for this. Do I have, am I usually too abstract or too airy or something? Maybe I need to be, um, to write clearer images. Okay, that should be on your revision checklist. Um, organization. Have I looked at this from different angles? Um, what if I turned the poem upside down and read it backwards? <laughs> Could I make a discovery there? So, but whatever you are really interested in, whatever you have learned, if you just, you know, arbitrarily we take, I say 10, because 10 is a nice round number, uh, write down 10 questions to ask each poem, and that's your checklist, and it can change as your, as your needs change as your aesthetic changes. As your skill changes. As your skill changes, as your enthusiasm yeah. changes, yes. Yeah. I really like something that you said earlier, that revision is a life and death kind of thing. And at, it's true. At some point. Yeah, yes. at some point. Yeah. At some point. I didn't know it at the time that it was a life or death, life and death kind of thing, because if I knew then I wouldn't do it. I would be paralyzed with fear from the responsibility. Mm -hmm. Isn't that nice to yeah. have done the life and death kind of things, not knowing yes. the stakes? Yes. That's what they used to say, ignorance is bliss. Yeah. You know? um, 
And the way I feel about AI, I'm not afraid of it because I don't understand it <laughs> enough to be afraid of it. <laughs> I have uh, some random poetry questions for you. Yes. And what makes a good title for a book? What makes a good title for a book? Yeah. Um, uh, one that hangs on through the process. It's like I, oftentimes what I do is when I have a pile of poems that I think is beginning to, you know, raise its hand saying, I'm a book, I'm a book, uh, then I give it a working title. And a working title means that it's open to change. And as you work through it, if you get a better title, you know, you can change it. Um, uh, one of my, let's see, my book American Flamingo is a case in point. I I wrote that book. I had it. I, I was right at the end of the process of writing that book, and I decided I got tired of its title, American Flamingo. Um, I loved the idea because it was an iconic image. It was an image that came uh, in my life in so many guises. It was there. So it was, it was something that I wanted to say. At the end of the book, because the book had been rejected a couple of times, I began to doubt whether that was a good title or not. So I got rid of that title and I called the book, which I, st I still like this title too, it was this, uh, Like a River. I, I, I made the poem, I turned the book into Like a River and that, that was my, my title right at the end. That was my doubt title. My doubt title. And then I got it published under that title, Like a River. And as I was doing my last read, something in me said, nope. that's not nope. the title. The title is American Flamingo. And I asked a couple of my good poet friends and they said, yeah, Greg, why'd you change it? You know? Why'd you change it? I don't know. I lost confidence in it. But I went back to it, and luckily, the press, they didn't like it, but they changed it back to the, the American Flamingo. And I'm very happy they did. And how did you arrive at the A Feel the First Things? How did you choose that as a title? I, I love the word field. A field, when you say a field, that almost everybody will come up with some kind of image of a field, yeah. you know. And then you start thinking about the language. A field, it's a multi-level word. I mean, it has all kinds of meanings. Uh, a field of daffodils. A field of clover. A field of horses. Snow. <laughs> snow. Yeah. A field of snow. Okay. A field of first things. Yeah. And first things are, you know, literally they were memories, yeah. but uh, metaphorically they were essential things, first things, basic stuff, good stuff, important stuff, baseline truth, truth and beauty. I stick to truth yeah. and beauty. Classic. Yeah. What is your favorite poetry craft book? notwithstanding the one that I wrote. Okay. Um, my favorite poetry craft book. It's probably more than one because I've read dozens of them. I love uh, Richard Hugo's The Triggering Town, um, partly because I love Richard Hugo and, and his, his poetry. The Triggering Town is a great, useful book uh, for uh, writers coming out because it's, it's just... It's it's got real down to earth uh, advice, good advice, good advice that listen to the language, pay attention. What's more important, the practical, clear truth or the music? He says the music's more important because the music is what is lighting up your feelings, you know, and it's the it's the music of the language that is the access uh, to the soul, you know, to the to the feeling, so that's, that's important. And for most smart people, it's a hard truth to get into, but it's there. So I, I think Triggering Town is, is a great book. I also like the 
Luchi's The Wen Fu, uh, The Art of Writing, third century China. You know, a poet in the third century in China writes a fu, which is a Chinese form that mixes poetry and prose. And um, it's all advice about what to do and what not to do, you know. Uh, and, and it's a beautiful book. So The Wind Fu and The Triggering Town, you read those two books and you'll be in good shape. There are others. There are, um, Auden's The Dyer's Hand was a very important book to me at one time early on, a long time ago. Uh, very smart, very smart book. Um, one of my students, Robin Bain, she was a student of mine at the University of Missouri. She and Chase Twitchell, who was uh, a poet from New York, uh, they did a book called The Practice of Poetry. And it was, they collected uh, prompts and teaching th things from poets all across the country. And it's a great little book that is a collaboration of a whole bunch of poets. I hope you write one. I do hope you write one. Maybe I will. I don't know. I'm busy writing other things right now, but... Well, you always be busy writing yeah. other things. Yeah. And then my last question is a question that I ask all my guests who teach creative writing, and that is if there is one thing you want your students to remember from you in your class, what is it? What is the most important thing you teach your students? To be true to yourself and your, your, your deepest vision. Whatever, whatever you desire most or believe in most or whatever core thing you think is wonderful and good, stick with it. Thank you very much. Greg, it's been an honor. Thank you. It's been an honor. <laughs>